The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Or write to Dean Bible Ministries Incorporated. That's at address 5868 Westheimer. W-E-S-T-H-E-I-M-E-R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. I want you to pay attention, especially you ladies, to this announcement. We have the ladies' prayer luncheon this Saturday. They decided to change. Apparently, you all voted or decided to change from the third Saturday to the first Saturday of each month for the prayer luncheon. And so that's going to be this Saturday morning at the home of Claude and Pat Broussard. Make sure you write down the address. It's on Bayou Brook, which is in the northeast quadrant of the intersection of Gessner and Briar Forest. So you go, I didn't put Gessner down there, but it's uh, one street north of Briar Forest off of Gessner. And you turn east into the subdivision on Dolliver. The first right is Bayou Brook, and you just follow it along, and the address is 9605. So get that down, and they, uh, refreshments, snacks, food's going to be provided, so y'all don't need to bring anything this time. I know that's going to disappoint some of you, but. Okay, I don't think there's any other announcements, are there? That ought to do it. Don't forget we have a new little publication out on a little promise book. And then we need to all be thankful that the storm didn't affect us. And I know uh, some of you evacuated. Some of you didn't evacuate very far. Others of you fought the traffic. And others of you were smart and just stayed stayed behind. But we can be thankful that the Lord spared us. Before we get started, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure you're in fellowship, then I'll open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you that... We can come to you this evening. We thank you that the storm did not hit us directly. We thank you that we were spared. Father, we pray for those that uh, were affected by the storm, that uh, you would uh, use this as an opportunity in the lives of many of those people to get their focus straight on spiritual things, and that you would use it that way for the nation as a whole. Father, we know that you are in charge of the weather. You're in charge of the details of our lives and that the way these things turned out is not by chance or happenstance, but according to your plan. And Father, we pray for this church that we continue to have an effective ministry in the lives of those that are have been uh, uh, displaced, lost their homes, lost everything they have, that we can continue to be uh, a ministry of grace to those in need. Now, Father, as we study your word this evening, we pray that you would help us to understand these things that we study and come to a greater appreciation of who you are. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21, and we are gradually approaching the end of our study of Abraham. Genesis chapter 21 is a tremendous chapter because it records the fulfillment of the promise that God has made from the beginning of this time with Abraham. There has been this expectation based on the promise of the seed, based on the prophecy that there would be a son given to Abraham and to Sarah. And that through that son, through that seed, the whole world would be blessed. Now, to get an appreciation for what's going on in this chapter, because in some sense it's almost anticlimactic. I often think that if a human author had written different sections of the Scripture would be completely different. That if you or I were to sit down and write about 
the birth of Isaac after all of this build-up and all of this anticipation that it would not cover seven verses, that it would cover uh, 20 or 30 verses, and there would be a tremendous amount of detail. So it's almost as if there is a, uh, it's an anticlimactic afterthought in terms of God's provision and God's promise. The background to understand the chapter is the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant is foreshadowed in Genesis 12, 1 through uh, 3, actually, where there is a promise of land, a promise of seed or descendants, and promise of blessing through the descendants, that Abraham would be a blessing himself and his descendants would be a blessing to all of the nations. These three components make up the core of the Abrahamic covenant. And so there's a promise given, the, the foreshadowing of the promise given in Genesis 12. Then in Gen- Genesis 15, we saw the actual covenant ceremony. And then in Genesis 17, God further expanded on the covenant. And for the first time, he, he said that there would be a son that would be born within a a year's time to Abraham and Sarah, and it was through that son that the promise would come. And so Genesis chapter 17 was marked by the sign of the Abrahamic covenant, which was circumcision. And then we've gone through Genesis 18 and 19, which focused on on God's righteousness, and all of this sets the stage for what happens here in Genesis chapter 21. And there we read at the beginning in the Lord... That is, Yahweh visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. Now, there's a couple of things I want you to pay attention to in the text as we go through this chapter. First of all, we need to highlight the verbs. The first verb here is the verb visited. And this is the Hebrew word pakad. The Hebrew word pakad, and it has as its root meaning the idea of numbering, reckoning something, visiting, punishing, appointing. It has a wide range of meanings. In fact, one Hebrew scholar makes the note that, that no single word in Hebrew seems to trouble translators as much as this word. And uh, we studied it a little bit in Psalm 8 a few weeks ago when we were in our study in Hebrews. What is man that thou art mindful of him? Or the son of man that thou dost take note of him. It's that phrase, take note of, that is this word pakad. So it shows up in a number of different places in the Old Testament. In fact, the word's used over 300 times, but it has a wide range of meanings. And so the word here is more than just visit. You know, in Texas, we talk about visiting with people. And what that means is we're just going to sit down and and talk and get to know each other and chew the fat a little bit and gossip a little bit and whatever else we do. But we just visit with somebody. And uh, that's not what the Lord's doing here. And it's more than the idea of of, uh, taking note of someone, which is how the New American Standard translates it, I believe. It has the idea uh, in many places of a superior paying close attention or giving scrutiny to someone he is responsible for, someone he is taking care of. So it has that idea of attending with care, uh, taking notes, seeking out, scrutinizing, uh, to pay close attention to someone. And that's the idea here is that the Lord is now focusing on Sarah. Now, the very idea of the Lord visiting Sarah, of course, and it, it conveys this idea of remembrance. Uh, is, uh, it's not stated as such in the text, but that's the, the idea. This whole idea is really what we call an anthropopathism. And that's a word that I know is familiar to most of you, not to some. An anthropopathism comes from the Greek word anthropos. And the uh, anthropos and pathos. Anthropos just means man or human, and pathos means emotion. And so in an anthropopathism, 
It's a figure of speech where you take a human emotion, something not physical, something in the, in the thought realm. You take a human emotion or human thought that God doesn't actually possess. That's the key that to understand He does not actually possess these attributes. And it is, it is ascribed to God in order to give us a frame of reference, a point of contact, so that we can understand something about God's uh, purpose, God's policy, God's plan, God's provision. I think that's a lot of good alliteration there. His purpose, His plans, His policy, His provision for us. And so... This isn't like all of a sudden God woke up one day and decided, well, it's about time I take care of this promise. I'm going to go down and see how Sarah's doing. There's been a plan all along, and he's working on that plan. But because of the length of time that has gone by since the original promise to the present, which has been at at least 25 years, it's spoken of as if God is finally taking care of this, as if he just woke up and he remembered to do this. And this idea is present many times in a lot of different uh, anthropopathisms of this type in the Old Testament. So the Lord is pictured here as finally remembering to fulfill this, uh, and it emphasizes the length of time that goes by. Now the next thing I want you to pay attention to in these first two verses are the verbs, uh, the next set of verbs that we run into. The Lord visited Sarah as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah as he had spoken. And then when we get into verse 2, we read, For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time of which God had spoken to him. Now, there's a, in, there's a set of three verbs here that emphasize the Word of God, the communication of God, God's utterance, God's speaking. And this is at the foundation of understanding the main doctrine that's communicated in this whole uh, passage. And by the passage, I don't mean the last little section, but the section from 21.1 down through uh, verse 21 that this focuses on the faithfulness of God. And that's the underlying doctrine that this whole section uh, hangs on and communicates is the faithfulness of God. So if you're going to teach in prep school, you're going to teach kids, you want a good illustration of God's faithfulness, then you go to Genesis chapter 21. What we have here is that it begins in verse 1 with the statement that God said... And in the statement God said, we have a, an unusual form of a verb here. Normally when you have a narrative style in Hebrew, it, has, it starts off with an imperfect verb. You only have two tenses in, Greek, I mean in Hebrew. You have an imperfect tense and a perfect tense. And they really refer to either ongoing action in the imperfect tense or completed action in the, uh, in the perfect tense. So it doesn't have anything to do with time. It has to do with the kind of action that the author is communicating. And you pick up the time element from the context. And when it's, we have the verb, he had said, we would expect normally to have an imperfect tense because that's the normal flow of Hebrew uh, narrative, just storytelling. And he did this, and they did that, and they did this other thing. And he did this. You just have these strings of imperfect uh, verbs. But here we have a perfect tense. And the perfect tense emphasizes completed action. So when we read this in the Hebrew, it sort of jars us a little bit and grabs our attention, and it should be translated as a almost like a pluperfect. The Lord visited Sarah, Sarah as he had already said. Or excuse me, I'm getting ahead of myself, the, the, it's a string of perfects here. The, the, the visited is a perfect also. And the Lord had already visited Sarah as he had said. So you're picking up this ongoing perfective action. The Lord had already visited Sarah. Well, what do you mean the Lord had already visited Sarah? Well, I want you to look at what's happening in the, in the flow of the narrative of the events here in Genesis 20 and 21. 
And I want you to mentally remove the chapter and verse divisions. And last time we looked at the episode where Abraham and Sarah had gone uh, up to Gerar, which was a Philistine city in the uh, what we call today the Gaza Strip. And they had spent some time there. And we know that it was some time because, once again, Abraham had had lied about Sarah being his sister. And Abimelech had looked at her and she was a beautiful woman. And that's a first clue we have that that God is rejuvenating Sarah because she's 90 years old and Abraham is afraid that that Abimelech or someone is going to steal her from him and kill him in order to uh, take her. So he's just lying about her being his wife. And we looked at that the last time. And in order to protect the seed, God caused all the women in that area to be barren. Now, that takes a while before everybody begins to notice that the birth rate has just dried up. There's just nothing. We went from a birth rate of of so many a a month to nothing. So it takes a while. It takes probably five or six months before all of a sudden people were aware that the women were not getting pregnant and no one was having children. And this in the ancient world was considered a tremendous curse because throughout the ancient world, when you read the literature, there was a tremendous concern for fertility and for population and for the increased growth in the, uh, in the community. So this was seen as a protection by God. And then when uh, Abraham finally straightens things out with Abimelech and prays to God in verse 17 of chapter 20, God healed Abimelech, his wife, his female servants, and they bore children. So the wombs open up. Now, again, this is going to take a little while before you start realizing that you have a, uh, a whole bunch of pregnancies. And it's going to be a month or so before you figure that out. For the Lord, verse 18, For the Lord had closed up all the wombs of the house of Abimelech because of Sarah, Abraham's wife. And the Lord had already visited Sarah. Now do you catch the flow? At this point, by the time Abraham is praying, he and Sarah are back together. And before he opens the wombs of the women in Gerar, he has, the Lord has opened Sarah's womb. And so she has uh, conceived and she has become pregnant. Now we get into the, the text as God had said. Now when did God say this? Well, this is why we have to understand the background, because this is so important. There's, a, there's sort of a side doctrine here that is extremely important for us to understand. And that is that when God promises or prophesies something, He fulfills it literally. Now, how do we know that? Do we know that because that's just an abstract principle of interpretation that we apply to the text? Not at all. While it is true that we understand hermeneutics, that's the study of interpretation, to be a literal grammatical interpretation, we don't take that as an abstract position and then just come and apply that to the text autonomously or just because that seems right to us. We look at the Scripture and the Scripture gives us examples of how Scripture interprets Scripture how Scripture interprets Scripture. And in hermeneutics, this is known as the analogy of faith. Now, I bet you all never heard that term before. I read a book called Evangelical Hermeneutics about three years ago and ran across that as a standard principle in hermeneutics. I'd never heard of it before. What the analogy of faith means is that you compare Scripture with Scripture. Now, I know you've heard that before. That you compare Scripture with Scripture and you let Scripture interpret Scripture and it's from the way the Scripture interprets other Scripture, that we derive our principles for interpretation. And this is a classic example here and really lays a foundation for understanding the faithfulness of God in relationship to His Word and His promise and how to interpret prophecies. So let's take a second and just look at what God had said to Abraham and Sarah in these preceding uh, verses. In Genesis 13:6, God told Abraham, I will make your descendants as the dust of the earth. Now at that point, in Genesis chapter 13, Abraham is about uh, 80-something, uh, early 80s, 
and he has not had children. Sarah is barren, and yet there's this promise of descendants. It doesn't get any more specific than that. And he's thinking, well, maybe it could come through uh, Eliezer. If I adopt him as my heir, maybe it could come through uh, someone other than Sarah. And then Genesis 15:4, after Abraham tried to convince God it could come through Eliezer, his servant, uh, God says, no, it's one who comes from your own body who will be your heir. So it gets a little more specific. And notice he connects the idea of it's his physical descendant who will be his heir. Those two ideas come, are tied together again in chapter 21 because the issue underlying the main event of chapter 21, which is the re- removal of Ishmael and Hagar, has to do with inheritance. And then in Genesis 17:19, God said, Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son. That's our first clue that it's going to be a male child. Sarah, your wife will be the one through whom this comes. Not Hagar. It's not an adopted servant. It's Sarah is going to be the mother, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. So there's the prophecy regarding that it will be Sarah, and it will be, his name will be Isaac. And I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant and with his descendants after him. Now, let's stop a minute. Connected to the statement that it's going to be a son through Sarah and his name will be Isaac is a restatement of the covenant. Now, can you come into that verse and take out your razor blade and separate the promise to Isaac from the covenant that's everlasting with the descendants. No, you can't. If one, And what I'm saying here is if the first part of this is fulfilled literally, then the second half has to be fulfilled literally. You can't come in with a uh, hermeneutical razor blade and cut the verse in half and say, well, I'm going to interpret the first half literally and the second half allegorically. I call that the doctrine of you've got to dance with the one who brung you. If you're going to start literal, you have to end literal. If you're going to start allegorical, you have to end allegorical. You can't switch partners in the middle of the dance. First time I dropped that on folks in Connecticut, there was just a blank stare. They had never heard that before. You've got to figure out ways to use Texas idiom on these doctrines. Another verse, just two verses later, is Genesis 17:21. But my covenant I will establish with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you when? At this time next year. So we have the specificity. It's going to be Sarah. His name's going to be Isaac. It's going to be at this time next year. And my covenant will be passed on and confirmed and go through him. Then in Genesis 18:10, it got a bit more specific. And this is when... Uh, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, along with the two angels, visited Abraham in, uh, at Mamre, at Hebron, and just prior to the de- destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And at that point, he announced again the time when, when uh, Isaac would be born. And he said, And he, that's Yahweh, uh, the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, said to him, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah your wife shall have a son." So these are the promises that God gave, and they're prophetic. They're not only promises, but they're prophetic promises. And the issue is, now how do we interpret those? Did somebody else have the child? Was the child named something else? Was it a girl and not a boy? Was it spiritualized? Was it a group? No, it is. it happened literally exactly and precisely as God announced it. And that shows us by example that when we study prophecy, that it must be interpreted consistently with this, with this principle of a literal grammatical uh, hermeneutic, as they say, the plain meaning of Scripture, unless there's some overriding issue within the context that means that we should take it in some other way. So this is emphasized by the phrase in the Hebrew... Uh, literally reads, For Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the set time, as at the set time 
just as God had spoken. And it's not translated that way in the King James. New King James says, uh, at the set time of which God had spoken. Uh, literally, it's according to which or according as, which indicates that the fulfillment was literal or just as or exactly as or according to the standard of what was promised. So fulfillment is literal. God doesn't shift and give an allegorical interpretation. Now, one of the reasons I've belabored that a little bit is so that we understand uh, that the real issues in life today really come down to this, this whole issue of hermeneutics. In fact, I'm not even going to bore you with it, but just to let you know, hermeneutics today in seminary classes isn't what hermeneutics was when I was a student. The whole discipline has changed. And it used to be the basic uh, application of two or three rules in terms of understanding the meaning of a passage. And now uh, you have to uh, get into all this subjective stuff, what's going on in the interpreter. It's all been influenced by postmodernism to one degree or another. Now, let's look at how all of this really applies. First, first of all, we need to realize God made three promises to Abraham in the covenant that we saw already. Land, seed, and blessing. He promised a son who would father innumerable descendants, including kings. Now, all of that was fulfilled how? It was fulfilled literally. Now, if we look at the first part of the contract, okay, we look at this as a legal document, which is what a covenant is. It's a contract. And you have paragraph 1, paragraph 2, paragraph 3. Paragraph 1 says, I'm going to do X, Y, and Z. And then when it's fulfilled, and we see it historically, X, Y, and Z was fulfilled precisely, literally, as claimed in that paragraph. Now we go to paragraph 2. Paragraph 2 says that I'm promising you a land. That land has specific boundaries. We're going to lay it out according to real estate. We're going to go from the river of, uh, river of Egypt, which is the Wadi al-Aresh down in the Sinai, all the way up to, uh, up to the Euphrates. And all of that land in between belongs to Abraham. Now see what covenant theology does, or other forms of replacement theology. What they, they come in and they say, well, the Jews rejected Jesus. So because the Jews rejected Jesus, they're out. The church is in. There's only one people of God. They don't believe in a distinction between Israel and the church. Israel is replaced by the church. And so now these promises become spiritual for the church so that the land is now heaven. Now, did you follow that? The land is now heaven. So that when God says He promised to Abraham seed, a land, that land is no longer a literal piece of real estate. It's heaven. So this is why people coming from a uh, post-millennial or amillennial position do not believe that Israel has any right to the land over there. And if you remember when we had our prophecy conference back in, uh, back in May, I think it was either uh, Tommy or Randy mentioned a letter that came out of Knox Theological Seminary. Now, Knox Theological Seminary is uh, related, I can't remember the name of his church, uh, uh, James Kennedy's church in, uh, in Florida. James Kennedy's on television a lot. And they, he's the head of that seminary. And it's a Reformed seminary, Reformed Covenant Theology or synonyms. And in their open letter that they published to, on their website to evangelicals, they argue that there is no significance to Israel being in the land today, and therefore there is no reason politically why we should support Israel. Now, what has historically made a difference between the U.S., and the U.S. relationship to Israel and Europe is because in the U.S. our theology was impacted by dispensational teaching. And dispensationalism from the early 1800s up to the present has emphasized that there is a future in God's plan for Israel and Israel has a right to the land based on God's promise and that those who bless Israel will be blessed. And therefore, it is the purpose of this nation to support Israel and to be a friend of Israel. And this has worked itself out historically and is one of the reasons that we support Israel. Now, that doesn't mean 
that you rubber stamp every decision that's made by the, the Israeli government. But it does mean that we stand behind Israel because anything else that is anti-Zion is anti-Semitic. And so we don't want to put ourselves nationally in a position of divine discipline. So this is just one way in which you, you allow your theology to affect some of your political views. Now, it's based on what? A literal interpretation of the Old Testament. So if God fulfilled the promise related to a son, literally, then he's going to fulfill the promise related to the land, literally. And that land, that real estate, belongs to Israel. And then the third part was that through Abraham, the nations would be blessed. And so it is through the Lord Jesus Christ, ultimately, who's the source of blessing for all, because the Lord Jesus Christ, as the, as a, the son of Abraham and the son of David, is the one who goes to the cross to die on the cross for our sins and to pay the penalty for our sins. And so it is through Abraham that all nations are blessed. And that works itself out in the church age because the wild olive branches, according to Romans chapter 11, which are the Gentiles, you all are a bunch of wild olive branches, and I know some of you are wilder than others, but... Uh, We're wild olive branches, and we've been grafted into that olive tree. And the picture of that olive tree in Romans 11 uh, talks about the root and the fruit, and the root is the Abrahamic covenant. And so you take wild olive branches, and and the natural branches are cut off, and these are the Jews that have rejected Christ. And the uh, natural olive branches are grafted in so that we partake of the blessing of, of Israel, And then uh, when the time of the Gentiles runs out during the tribulation period, the Jew, Jewish nation corporately is grafted back in. So they're not in a place of blessing right now. But they will be in a place of blessing again in the future. Now, all of this is to t- reinforce for us that we interpret the Scripture literally, that if we uh, Scripture has interpreted Scripture this way in the past, then it will uh, it applies all the way across the board in terms of the Abrahamic covenant. The promise and the prophecy has been literally fulfilled. It was also literally fulfilled in relation to the the time it occurred when. Let me see if we can go back to Genesis two on the slide. Uh, and Abraham is in his old age. It was indicated by God that it would and chapter 17, that he would be 100 years old at the time. It's at the set time of which God had spoken to him. So every element in verse 2 references different elements in the prophecy. Abraham would have a son. It would be in his old age. It would be at the set time uh, that God had spoken to him. And what we learn here is that the Word of God is the focus and that the Word of God cannot be broken. And the Word of God is based upon His character, which is a character of truth and faithfulness. And the reason I go to those words is because they are interconnected, as we've seen in other studies we've done recently. There's this interconnection between uh, faith and truthfulness. Uh, So we'll go, let me run the slide down here a little bit. If I can, there we go. Now, um, the focus is on God's word and God's promise. And so we see that God is always faithful to his promise. This is what's seen in Hebrews 11.11. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And this talks about the the regeneration of her body. Elasticity has to be restored to her uh, abdominal muscles, to her uh, uterus, to all of the reproductive organs. Not only that, but as we'll see in the next verse, uh, her ability to nurse. So her entire body is rejuvenated. This is a tremendous miracle that is... uh, Uh, just hinted at in the Scripture. It's not one of those miracles that just stands out, but it is just treated very subtly in the Scripture. 
Uh, she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. And that is the core idea here in Genesis chapter 21 is that God is faithful. And on the basis of God's faithfulness, we can have confidence in the Word of God that He will fulfill His promises, He will fulfill His prophecies just as He gave them. It gives us hope. Hope is a confident expectation because we know that He has spoken. He will bring to fulfillment His Word exactly as He said. So it gives us a confident expectation in the future and it provides certainty and stability for chaotic times. And this is really the root of all prophecy. Biblical prophecy only secondarily is given to tell us about the future. Now, people get all concerned about the future. They want to read horoscopes, and it used to be they would get on on uh, television and dial those 1-900 numbers to call sister whoever and, and get their prophecy and their palm read or whatever it would be and get their uh, charts. I don't see so much of that anymore. I think there were so many scams that were running that the government finally cl- clamped down. But... People are concerned about the future, and they have all kinds of curious questions. And in some churches, in the way they handle prophecy, it's more uh, to get everybody all excited and stimulated and scare the heck out of everybody than it is to, to really teach the Word. But that's not the biblical approach to prophecy. The, the, the greatest foretelling future prophetic type of activity that we know of are in the books such as Isaiah Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. And in those books you have tremendous uh, revelations concerning the future. But when are they given? They're given to Israel during times of tremendous chaos when the nation was about to be attacked and overrun by the Babylonians or by the Assyrians. And God is giving the prophecy to reassure the nation that he is in control and that there is a future for the nation. And no matter how chaotic it may be, no matter how uncertain the times, no matter how much they might lose in the process of the, going through the divine discipline, God was faithful. At what He hadn't lost control, and he was working out his plans and purposes in history. So the ultimate purpose for prophecy is to remind us that God's in control and we can have certainty and stability in the midst of chaotic times. Now, the concepts of, of faithfulness and truth, as we've seen in a couple of previous studies, are interrelated. The, one of the Hebrew words uh, is the, based on the root aman, from which we get our noun, uh, we use the word amen, it has various shades of meaning. Uh, another noun form is emuna, and we see the interconnection between faithfulness and truth. Actually, the root meaning of this word group is firmness, steadfastness, fidelity, truth, the concept of a certain foundation, where I got the title for the basic series, Foundation for Life, that it's truth, and this is the foundation. And truth means that God is faithful. They're like two sides of the same coin. Because God is truth, and He is faithful. And he is, ever ch- he is never changing. He is always the same. He is immutable. And so the idea of faithfulness is reiterated throughout the Scriptures. For example, in the New Testament, we find that along with God being love and God being holy... Uh, he is said to be faithful. First Thessalonians 5.24 He who calls you is faithful who will also do it. That's the principle of Genesis 21. God said what He would do, and He keeps His word, He keeps His promise, and He will bring it to pass. Uh, Hebrews 10.23 Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. And one of the first examples of this in the Old Testament is Genesis 21. He promised in Genesis 12. He promised in Genesis 15. He promised in Genesis 17. And he brings it to fulfillment in Genesis 21. Furthermore, we see that uh, he is faithful in terms of a covenant. God always establishes his relationships with us in terms of this contract, in terms of this covenant. Why do you think that is? Well, we see a hint of it today. 
that by using a contract, what God does is he, he is willing to limit himself to the boundaries of written words. So that man, after he writes it down and he puts it into words, man can come to those words and hold God to those promises. Just think if we didn't have that. If it were just sort of random ideas. Well, we could go in and change it, and the words themselves wouldn't be important. It relates to the doctrine of the inerrancy of Scripture, the verbal plenary inspiration of Scripture. It also tells us something, a little insight into what goes on in our world today. I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but but after the Katrina hurricane, and we're starting to hear a little bit of it now, but right after Katrina, when everybody was, was in a pretty serious state of devastation down in New Orleans, you had uh, some people get some uh, people of a certain political uh, persuasion get on the uh, news and demand that the federal government should do something, should do it immediately. And I kept thinking, what is it that's going on here that they don't understand about the rule of law? See, law puts things in a contractual form so that everybody is designated in turn, you know, there are specific designations as to the specific responsibilities of local government, state government, federal government. And nobody can just come in and just do whatever they want to just because they sent somebody's in trouble. The president doesn't have the power to just call up the National Guard and send them in there immediately to help people. It's at the control of the state governor. So we have these uh, issues related to law and the words and contract. And what, hap- what the reason people come along and they do this and they say these things and say, well, it doesn't matter, just the president should just go, help, just, just do something. They don't realize that, that or, or what's actually going on is because of their postmodern mindset, law and absolutes don't matter. It doesn't matter. The, the words aren't worth the ink they're written in anymore. Because people of a certain political persuasion no longer believe in contractual absolutes. And it's, you know, they do when they have to pay their visa bill or their mortgage, but, but ultimately they really wouldn't if they were consistent with their position. But we have a God who has limited himself on the basis of written contracts. Therefore, Deuteronomy 7, 9 says, Therefore know that the Lord your God, He is God, the faithful God, who keeps covenant and mercy, literally keeps a contract and faithful, loyal love for a thousand generations with those who love Him and keep His commandments. So we see that God's faithfulness is the foundation of His covenant fulfillment which is the basis for security in the Abrahamic covenant. If you are a Jew, you know you have a right to the land. Why? Because God wrote it in a contract. There's a real estate contract. Preceding that, there's the Abrahamic contract. And you know that because God is true to His Word, you have a right to that land, and it gives you security in the land. Now, if you don't believe in a literal fulfillment and interpretation of Scripture, and you come in like the covenant theologians do and replacement theology and all these other groups, you come in and you say, ah, well, they rejected Christ as Messiah, so God's going to make this a, a heavenly land now. It's not a literal land. What have you just done? You've just said that the Jews had no security in God. You have subtly but truly rejected the faithfulness of God. God isn't faithfully changed the terms of the agreement. And so if you, if you were consistent, you couldn't believe in eternal security for the believer. Because God, something might happen and God might change his mind down the road. See, God said one thing to Abraham, but then the Jews disobeyed him, so God changed the terms of the contract. He's not faithful. That's what they, they're really saying. And what that, the implication of that is that there would no longer be any eternal security. How could we believe that God is going to save us? So the very foundation of covenant theology in terms of their hermeneutic runs against the whole concept of eternal security. But we have passages in the New Testament such as 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is faithful through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, 
He remains faithful. He cannot deny himself. This gives us great confidence that no matter how much we fail, God is not going to just pull the, pull the string and set us loose. He didn't set loose Israel. There will be a future for Israel. God is true to his promises. He is faithful and he will never desert us. In the same way, we know that God is faithful no matter how horrible the test may be, no matter how difficult life may be at times. 1 Corinthians 10.13 tells us that no temptation or testing has overtaken you, but such as is common to man. And God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tested beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will provide the way of escape also, that you may be able to endure it. And the principle there is that God sovereignly rules in our testing so that no matter what happens, he's made the solution and and the solution is always in his word. So we come to the conclusion of this first section that Sarah conceived the child while in Gerar as a direct result of God's fulfilling his literal promise to Abraham. And uh, as we look at this context, we see that God is faithful to his promise and fulfills his promise as he says. Now in verse 3 we read, And Abraham called the name of his son, who was born to him, whom Sarah bore to him, Isaac. Notice the repetition of their names. It's not Abram, it's not Sarai. There's a reiteration here that this is Abraham. It's a reminder of his covenant name. It is not Sarai, it is Sarah a reminder of her covenant name, and that they named the child Isaac just as God was specific in his promise, they're specific in their obedience. He is called Isaac, which is from the Greek, I mean, excuse me, from the Hebrew word Yitzhak, from the verb Sahak, which means to laugh. And Yitzhak means he laughs or uh, God laughs because it is a reminder of, of God, uh, the joy of the Lord that is theirs. So uh, Yitzhak means he laughs, and the word Sahak can refer to laugh in the sense of joy and rejoicing, or it can also refer in the PL stem to playing or mocking. So in the Cal stem, it talks about laughter in terms of joy, or laughter at incredulity. You just hear something, you just laugh because you don't think it's possible. Now remember, Abraham in Genesis 17 laughed. But he's laughing out of joy. It's finally going to happen. But then we got into Genesis 18, and God's talking to Abraham in the tent. Sarah's listening in, and she hears uh, the promise that this time next year you'll have a son. She just she laughed inside to herself, and the Lord challenged her on it because it betrayed a bit of incredulity on her part. She didn't really think that it would happen. And so another word that runs through this whole section is this word for laughter. And it speaks of the joy that is present for them, that God has fulfilled his promise and given them a child in their old age. And then in verse... uh, uh, Then we remind you of the fact that, that Scripture has a unique view of children. Scripture says, Behold, children are an inheritance from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Now, that runs counter to a lot of thinking today. Children are sort of a nuisance. They get in the way. We need to have children, have a family, but, you know, we don't spend a lot of time there. Children are a reward under a biblical viewpoint. Okay, verse 4. Then Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Where does that take us? That goes back to Genesis chapter 17 when God instituted circumcision as the sign of the covenant. So these verses uh, that we have from verse 1 through 7, while they tell us about this tremendous fulfillment of the promise, at the same time it's in a very abbreviated account, but each statement that's made goes back to earlier events to tie everything together. Verse 5, Now Abraham was 100 years old just as it was prophesied in chapter 17. Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And then Sarah said, God has made me laugh, and all who hear will laugh with me. 
So this gives us the reason for Isaac's name. And whenever they would say his name, uh, for the rest of their lives, they would be reminded of the joy that God gave them. And she also said in verse 7, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? And so when she says this, she is taking the, the most unusual part of this, and that is that not only was she able to have a child, but she's able to nurse the child. And this would have called for a complete rejuvenation of her body. No one would have thought that that would happen. She says, For I have borne him a son in my old age. Now, when she said, for some of you who have noted, she says, uh, Children. Now, that doesn't mean that she had more than one. But it, what it indicates is uh, it's a figure of speech where the plural is put for the singular and it just emphasizing the fact that she would have uh, a child, Isaac, yet through him uh, would come innumerable descendants. Now, verse 8, we enter into the next section of this, of this chapter. And again, the underlying theme here is faithfulness the faithfulness of God. In the first seven verses, the focus is on God's faithfulness to Abraham in terms of the covenant. But those aren't the only people involved. Remember, God had also made promises to Hagar in relationship to Ishmael. And so now God has to deal with the, comp- the, the situation in the home that was complicated by Abraham's attempt to resolve the, the seed issue through Uh, having relations with Hagar and producing Ishmael. You've got the first, the literal firstborn in the tent, Ishmael, and Isaac's the secondborn. And uh, following their, the practice in the ancient world, Ishmael should receive two-thirds of the inheritance. So how's God going to solve this? It's interesting. Verse 8, so the child grew and was weaned. Now, in our culture, weaning usually occurs between the first year and the second year. In uh, the ancient world, weaning sometimes didn't take place until they were six or seven years of age. Uh, Sometimes, usually it was around the age of four, or at least uh, in 2 Maccabees it indicates that it was around the age of three, but this was uh, some thousand years earlier than the age of Maccabees. I'd never heard of that before. When I was in my first church, I had an organist who didn't wean her son until he was old enough to understand why he couldn't uh, get milk anymore. Never heard of that before. So it doesn't take place simply to a baby in diapers. So this would also, if a child reached that age, it was a sign that he was going to survive infancy in case if there was a high rate of infant mortality. And so there would be a tremendous celebration at that particular occasion. And so Abraham made a great feast on the same day that Isaac was weaned. So we know that he's older now. He's four or five. He could be as old as six or seven. And it's about this time that Sarah begins to notice the behavior of the older Ishmael, who's probably 16 or 17, 18, 19 at this time. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, scoffing. And the word translated scoffing is the Hebrew word mitzach. Now, if you notice, it sounds a lot like yitzach, mitzach. It's from the same root, sahak, meaning to laugh, but it's a P-A-L participle. And in the P-A-L stem, laughter is intensified to mean mocking or ridicule. So it's a play on the name of Isaac, this word play throughout this chapter on the word uh Uh, So in some way, we don't know how, Ishmael begins to ridicule or make fun of Isaac. But what this brings to the fore in Sarah's mind is the fact that there would be a competition for the inheritance between her son and Ishmael. And so, typical of a mother, she wants to protect her son's inheritance rights. She knows he's the one who is the designated heir through the covenant. And so she comes up with a plan. And that plan is to get rid of Hagar. So she goes to Abraham and says, Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, namely with Isaac. Remember, God promised that Isaac would be the heir. 
Now, here you have a case of a right thing being done in a wrong way. She recognizes the fact that Isaac shouldn't be the heir, but she's going to go about it the wrong way. Rather than trust God to resolve the problem, she's going to get right in the middle of it. But God is going to allow this in terms of His permissive will because it happens to fit with the overall flow of His plan and His agenda. So she goes to Abraham and gives him advice, and Abraham doesn't want to follow. He knows what happened the last time. And so we're told the matter was very displeasing. And the Hebrew idiom here is that Abraham was just really angry about this. And he figured, well, the last time you wanted me to do something with Hagar, we really got in trouble. I'm not going to listen to you this time. And so he's not going to follow her advice. But God interfered in verse 12 and said, Don't let it be displeasing in your sight because of the lad or because of the bondwoman. Notice she's never called his wife. Muslims want to claim that Hagar was a wife, but she's never called his wife. She is the bondwoman. She's the slave. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. She might have had the wrong motive, but it fits with the plan. We have to get Ishmael and Hagar out of the tent. We have to get them out of the compound and make a separation here so we can focus on on the, uh, the plan. Now, according to the customs of the ancient world, if you had taken a surrogate wife in terms of the, the, the slave woman, then her child would be qualified for inheritance rights. But if you released her so that she is now free, then that disqualifies them from inheritance. So I guess the freedom is worth all of the inheritance. So God says this is not a bad plan. Whatever Sarah has said to you, listen to her voice. For in Isaac your seed shall be called. A reiteration of the promise that the inheritance goes through Isaac. Yet, verse 13, I will also make a nation of the son of the bondwoman because he is your seed. And this goes back to the fact that he had made promises to, uh, promises to Hagar that God would bless Ishmael and uh, that there would be descendants who come from Ishmael. Genesis 16.10, The angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. That would come through Ishmael. And then in 17.20, And as for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and will multiply him exceedingly. He shall beget twelve princes, and I will make him a great nation. And that's exactly what happened uh, to Ishmael. His descendants went down into the northern Arabian Peninsula, intermarried with the descendants of Esau and others, and became a great nation uh, in the ancient world, a numerous uh, nation. So we see that God is faithful in his promise even to Ishmael. Genesis 21:14. we have the story of how they left. Abraham rose early in the morning, took bread and a skin of water, putting it on her shoulder, gave it and the boy to Hagar and sent her away. So he gives them food, water. They leave to go into the desert uh, south of Beersheba into the wilderness. And before long, they're out of food and they're out of water. There's tremendous drama here. You just think about some of the folks we've seen on the television recently who are out of water and out of food and somewhat stranded in, in uh, South Louisiana and New Orleans. This is the same thing. They're out of water. They're out of food. They're beginning to lose their energy. They're, they don't have anything to eat. Their stomach is empty. And their mouths are parched. And she just gives up. She's not trusting God. There's nothing spiritual going on here. And... She finally decides they're just going to die. They're just worn out. They can't go any further. And she puts the boy under one of the shrubs so he'd be in the shade. And then she goes off about 100 yards or so because she didn't want to watch him die. And she says, Let me not see the death of the boy in verse 16. And she sat opposite him, and she lifted her voice and wept. She's not praying. She's just weeping. And then in verse 17 we read, And God heard the voice of the lad. So apparently he has cried out to God. Then the angel of God called to Hagar out of heaven and said to her, What ails you, Hagar? 
Fear not, for God has heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. So we see that God is faithful even to the promise to Ishmael, that, uh, to Hagar, that he will make a great nation of them. Then God opened her eyes, and it is God who provides for them. She sees a well of water nearby, and she went and filled the skin with water, gave the lad a drink. So God was with the lad, and he grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. He's a hunter. Verse 21, he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran, which is down in the southern, uh, across the southern border of the promised land. And notice, his mother. Now, who's his mother? Hagar the Egyptian. His mother took a wife for him from where? From the land of Egypt. So Ishmael, who was half Egyptian, is going to marry an Egyptian woman. And so their descendants are going to be uh, partake of that Hamitic line from Egypt. Remember, that is a, a Hamitic line. The Egyptians are not uh, Shemitic, Semitic. So that concludes that section. Now, the reminder here is that God is always faithful. This I recall to mind, therefore I have hope. Through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed because His compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening, to be reminded of your faithfulness, your faithfulness to Abraham, your faithfulness to Hagar, that you always fulfill your promises literally. And as such, we can go to your word and read your promises and know that when they apply to us, that you will fulfill them uh, literally and that you can always be trusted and that we have security and certainty in our relationship with you. Father, we pray that you would encourage us and strengthen us with the teaching of your word this evening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.